Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Our guest today is an award-winning author and renowned historian. Professor Harvey Kay, a celebrated expert on both Thomas Paine and Franklin Delano Roosevelt, has written 10 books, including Thomas Paine and the Promise of America, The Fight for the Four Freedoms, What Made FDR and the Greatest Generation Truly Great, Why Do Ruling Classes Fear History and Other Questions, Take Hold of Our History, Make America Radical Again, and his latest, FDR on Democracy, the greatest writings and speeches of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. If it isn't obvious by now, it will be by the end of our discussion. Our guest is a man who truly believes that words have power and words have consequences. Professor Kay, welcome back to Words Matter. Thank you. I've been looking forward to this a lot. Well, we have two. And to your point, we uh, originally scheduled this interview for March 18th, I believe, before your book came out. And of course, history got in the way. You didn't come to New York and nobody traveled anywhere and still isn't traveling. In a way, I'm glad that we did because, as I mentioned to you before we started, I believe that the book has more resonance and FDR's words have more relevance at this point particular moment, and that is, you know, mid-December of 2020 with the election of Joe Biden and the beginning of his new administration, then they probably did even when you were a little early. Not that that's bad at all, but you were a tad bit early. And before we can begin, I do want to say one other thing. I owe you a debt of gratitude because as we talked about in our last interview, I've been reading, studying, listening to history since about the age of five. And from five to my early 30s, I learned a great deal. After that, I'm not going to say I didn't learn anything. I learned, still continue to learn, but I never came across any idea or concept that radically changed and altered the way that I looked at everything else I'd learned. And I got that from your last book and our last interview. Here's what you said. What we need to realize is when Americans confront mortal crises, they make America more radical. They make America freer, more equal, and more democratic. And if we're going to live up to being Americans, that's exactly what we have to do. Now, I have to say that idea that in those times of mortal crisis, that Americans do that, because I've always considered us a sort of culturally conservative country, and that is by and large often true, but it's in those moments. And so uh, thank you for that. Well, I think you'll see that one of the speeches that I included in this collection of FDRs is a speech that he gave to teenagers at Milton Academy up in Boston in 1926. And the question or the title that framed the speech was Wither America. And in the speech, he actually says we shouldn't be too surprised by the fact that conservatives, I'm paraphrasing, govern longer than liberals and progressives do. But what we should worry about is that they might govern so long that they might literally undo the best of America. He doesn't deny the tendency to conservatism, which I don't think is only characteristic of America by any means. But his point is that there are those moments when you realize that if this keeps up, we're in trouble. 
And this is 1926, and he's already clearly worried about America because of the gross inequalities that were emerging at this late moment in the Gilded Age in the Roaring Twenties. It's one of the things that I think when we have our discussion today that I hope our listeners come away with was that FDR was surprisingly prescient in his view. The myth is sort of FDR read the country very well and steered people where they wanted to go, but he saw things long before and then with a clarity that is almost clairvoyant. And we'll get to that when we talk about his 1936 convention speech at the Democratic Convention in Philadelphia. Yeah, we- if I could just add to that, I want to say before we get into the words themselves is that one of the reasons that I moved into FDR is the fact that he actually looked back at a critical moment, which maybe we'll have a chance to get to, to Thomas Paine. And when I saw that, having been, I mean, Paine is my lifelong hero, and Paine's words, I think, are the most important in American history. When I saw him do that, I thought, wow, I should look more deeply into Franklin Roosevelt. I mean, I grew up in a Roosevelt Democratic household, but it's one thing to grow up in that kind of milieu, and it's another thing to say, well, I've got to look into this further. And One of the beauties about doing research is that you end up surprising yourself if you're doing your work properly. Your preconceptions get seriously challenged. And a lot of them, for me, got seriously challenged. And and we can talk about that as we go through the speeches, because I think it's important for people to realize my earlier book on the fight for the four freedoms, what made FDR and the greatest generation truly great, that this book stands on the shoulders of that book. When I came to realize the very unique, excuse this Marxian term, this, or Hegelian, if you like, this dialectic between a president and a people, which is really, in many ways, the most unique part of the Roosevelt years. The two greatest presidents are Lincoln and Roosevelt. The third great leader of America was clearly Washington for all of his sins. And the fact is, however, that in the case of FDR, more so than Washington and more so than Lincoln, there was this dialectic that comes through in the words and indeed in the making of The Greatest Generation. Absolutely. I'm glad you brought up challenging preconceived notions. As I mentioned before your previous book, one of the things that you taught me there was, although Jefferson is more quoted by American politicians today as the forefather of American intellectual thought with the Declaration, it's really common sense, which is to me and again, through you. Thank you. Yeah. And I'm going to start off with another preconception. And it's one we actually talked about off mic last time, and you were in the middle of finishing this book. So you obviously were were focused on it. But I had made a comment to you about what I viewed as FDR's politics, political philosophy. And I had said to you that polio had made him more compassionate, more socialistic. And you said, actually, no, it didn't. And that's the first place we're going to start. We're going to start with that speech that you started the book with from 1912. And again, this was a conversation you and I had off mic before, but I got to read it in this book. And it was astounding to me how an FDR, who I think described himself later in life at that age as a pretty arrogant cuss, I think he said he was, (laughs) that progressive in his thinking nine years before polio. So anyway, with that, let's set the stage for that first speech in the book, which is we have acquired a set of conditions which we must seek to solve. It was a speech to the People's Forum in Troy, New York. 
where my family might have been the only group of uh, immigrants who came off the boat to Ellis Island and then moved up to Troy, New York. I have no idea why, neither do they. But my grandfather, Louis Levine, was a farmer outside of Troy in a town called Hoosick Falls. But be that as it may, tell us about that speech. Tell us about why it's important and why you started there. Well, one of the things that makes it important, and by the way, I, I do want to make clear that to call FDR a socialist is to exaggerate. And I prefer the term social democratic Although I think that they can slide, it, they can slide into each other very easily. But I prefer the term social democratic because otherwise it raises the question of, oh, he's a socialist. Uh, aren't you exaggerating? But the beauty of that speech and the reason I included it, what really is fascinating is it shows the degree to which, first of all, that FDR will never really give a speech that doesn't resonate or specifically refer to the past and its implications for the present, either by way of an example or by way of a force that we need to remember prevails in our life. And he opens up with a real sense of it's almost Western history itself and then more especially American history. But the reason I included it, besides the fact that he's on his way to eventually become a history teacher in chief as president, is that people always said that FDR was a man who had no ideas that, you know, in many ways he was perhaps pragmatic or he latched onto other people's well, ideas. Well, and that famous Holmes critique of him, first-rate temperament, second-rate intellect, I think added to that. And and again, reading your book, I've come to see that Holmes at 96, I think, was wrong. <laughs> yeah, well, and by the way, and I always thought that who the hell has original ideas to begin with, right? I mean, there's no, I can't imagine any original ideas, especially when it comes to social and political thought. So in this speech... It's evidence that he is urgently almost, and I don't want to use the word desperately, but in his own way, he's determined to find a way between the divide that prevails, especially in the Gilded Age, and once again prevails today, of a choice between, say, the socialist route on the one hand, and the individualist or the classical 18th century liberal route. That is, the free market versus some kind of collectivism. He's really looking for a way through that. And there's that term that we have always valued in American history, liberty. And of course, the more progressive version of that word liberty is freedom. FDR in that speech is saying, okay, what we need to consider, we've come to a point in history, especially in the United States, where we need to be thinking about, and it's a very awkward term, but you, it reveals or it registers or affords us a look into his mind, and he says, "Liberty of the community." Yeah, I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna read it because uh, un unlike his, some of his other speeches, there is no as long as I'm right. aware of recording. Yeah, of I would have been happy to read it, but you go ahead. I, I can see you're relishing to do oh, it. Oh no, Thank well, you. just uh, <laughs> during the past century, we've acquired a new set of conditions which we must seek to solve. To put it in the simplest and fewest words, I have called this new theory the struggle for liberty of the community rather than liberty of the individual. Yeah, now this is the proof that he's in what we would call a capital P progressive milieu. He's, he is among the progressive Democrats. He's definitely moving in that direction. Maybe the only thing that would have kept him from moving immediately in that direction over and over again is the fact he has a real rural sensibility at this point in his political career. And more the progressives more often are actually urban-based. And also what I found interesting, which I want to inject here is, this was actually the one speech in the book you include that happened to have been given when his cousin, his hero, 
Teddy Roosevelt was still alive. And I think that's important because knowing Teddy Roosevelt and knowing FDR, I'm sure Teddy read it and he knew that Teddy would read it. Even if Teddy didn't read it, FDR (laughs) gave it knowing or thinking or hoping that Teddy would read it. I'm sure that he sent it to him as well. I mean, I don't know that for a fact, but somebody else will have to look it up. But but yeah, that's pretty much the case. His cousin, Teddy, his wife's uncle, Teddy. I mean, he's going to model himself in many ways after his two presidential heroes, Teddy being the more obvious example. And of course, the other one being Woodrow Wilson. But he does transcend both of them, as we will see. He definitely transcends both of them. I just wanted to start with that speech because, again, one of the beauties of reading your work and talking to you and, and, and getting to know you is you do give us those things, the challenge and that narrative that FDR changed radically as a thinker, as a person, as a politician after the onset of polio. There's probably some truth to that, but it didn't change his fundamental core beliefs. And I think that that's really important. I do want to read another line to, that really matters to me in the speech because it's also it also is evident the degree to which FDR is also aware of the fact that he will be accused by either the right or the left for what he says. And this comes up again. And he says towards the end of that speech or later in the speech, if we call the method regulation, because he's trying to figure out how to what to term this liberty of the community, people will hold up their hands in horror and say un-American or dangerous. But if we call the same identical process cooperation, the same old focus will cry out, well done. So he's, he's always aware of what others will say, not because he's afraid of them, but because he's trying to figure out how to articulate these things so that it will appeal to the broadest possible, if you like, element of the citizenry. And he's ambitious. Okay, he doesn't want to be tarred and feathered for being too far left or for that matter, not going far enough. I just found the speech absolutely wonderful. And I have to say, I'm very proud. It hasn't been in any kind of collection of FDR speeches probably since the 1940s, something like that. So I grabbed hold of it. No, and it's great. If you're going to pick and choose speeches, you should start with the one that you start with, because again, I think it sets the tone for the rest of the book. And thank you. Where I wanted to go next, and again, with your 43 examples, we're not going to be able to go through every one of them today, but I highlighted a few. The next one I want to go to is the famous Forgotten Man. And I pick that for obvious reasons, but I think that it is at the beginning, as it were, of the 1932 campaign. It's a radio address that he gives as, as governor of New York from Albany. And set the scene a little bit and where we were in the Great Depression at that point, what Hoover had done or hadn't done, more importantly, and how FDR frames it, because I think It is not only important historically, not only important understanding FDR, it might even be important understanding where today's Democrats and today's heirs of FDR forget his greatness. Here, here should be an objective of government itself to provide at least as much assistance to the little fellow as it is now giving to the large banks and corporations. That is another example of building from the bottom up. It is high time to get back to fundamentals. It is high time to admit with courage that we are in the midst of an emergency at least equal to that of war. Let us mobilize to meet it. Yeah, I mean, the first thing everyone does when they think about the Great Depression is they go to the crash 
in the fall of 1929. And and I remember growing up as a schoolboy, maybe you do too, Adam, that you learn as, as if the crash caused everything else that followed it without paying attention to the fact that in the course of the 1920s, there's a great exaggeration about economic growth and how many people are benefiting from it. I'll just give you one example. Everybody says that people were making more money and they were buying more things. But what they often don't consider is the difference between what a wage earner made and what a household made. And during the course of the 1920s, farmers had yet to recover from the recession that followed World War I. And working people themselves only sustained the standard of living that they had or improved it to any degree because more and more often, at least two members of a household went out to work, which made household income grow, but it didn't necessarily mean that wages for working people were rising at all at the rate at which profits were rising for the, for the owners of businesses and finance. So the, the, the crash, in any case, the crash occurs. Unemployment was somewhere officially like 15 or 20, 25 percent, but it's really more likely 30. African-American unemployment was probably 50 percent. People truly were not just out of work. They were losing their homes. Farms were being foreclosed and auctioned off. Hundreds of thousands of teenagers were joining adult men and women who were hitting the road because their own family said, we can't afford you. You've got to go out and find a way to survive. People were constructing Hoovervilles, meaning the shack towns outside of the larger towns and cities. America witnessed the worst economic and social catastrophe in history. It was devastating. And so Roosevelt is governor of New York during these years from 1928 to 1932. And New York was not immune to the depression. I mean, people suffered on the same scale they did out here in the Midwest or further out in the West. But FDR did have a capital P progressive set of instincts. And he did pursue a series of experiments as governor, which will later become such things as the CCC, will also become the Tennessee Valley Authority. And things are going on in New York where he is trying his damnedest to afford work to young people or the unemployed, He was trying to create new public works projects to provide energy to farms that had yet to have electricity. He was an active governor who along the way gave speeches, which basically assured New Yorkers that he would do what he could. Sure, they could have done more, but he is determined as he had been for some years, I believe, although it may have seemed at certain times it was impossible because he was stricken with polio early in the 1920s, but he is going to run for president. And he's going to run for president carrying with him that idea that began to emerge of liberty of the community, which will later become what we would call social democracy, you might say. He's also going to run, having been influenced in the 1920s, by the labor activists that Eleanor Roosevelt has brought home to Hyde Park because of her own activities with the Women's Trade Union League during the 20s, when Roosevelt himself was more often at home trying to recover in some way from the polio, and then later as the governor of New York. So this is a man who's determined to do for the American people what the American people might not be able to do for themselves. He harnesses Lincoln's idea of the purpose of government. Government is our mean, the means by which we do together what we cannot do for ourselves as individuals. And that's the philosophy. So in this speech, of course, he's already beginning. And this is the thing that always annoys me when I, read, when I hear so many historians talk about FDR as having no ideas, there were no plans for the New Deal. It was all like on the run that these things emerged. 
But even here in his very first speech and ensuing speeches, he begins to lay out the essentials of what will be the New Deal. Sure, he doesn't lay out full-scale plans, but he lays out the agenda, you know, pretty much the degree to which you'll see in this speech and the ones that follow the idea, he calls it old age pensions, but it's social security, okay? He talks about addressing the environment. In those days, it was called not environmentalism, but conservation. He talks about restoring farmers' abilities. It's all there. It's in the making. And this speech, The Forgotten Man, is to say, I haven't forgotten you, and the government that I hope to establish, the administration I hope to lead, will not leave you out. This is not in favor of rescuing the rich. This is in favor of enabling Americans to re, if you like, redeem, not the soul of America, though that did matter to him, but redeem the life of America. Well, and to your point, what's really amazing about that speech is that empathy and compassion and the detail of which he goes into his understanding of the suffering of people at that moment struck me. The other thing that struck me was the first speech, obviously, because it's really the first true depression speech that you include. But at that point, he is equating what is going on and that we must mobilize as if we were mobilizing for war, which is something obviously that the Hoover administration didn't see it in the same terms. And it was a contrast. But it was to me, it was an early theme. And like you said, he hits it from the tariff issues to conservation, to the pensions, to the farmers. You can see the roots of all those programs. And if you were listening to that radio address and you are somebody who's suffering, you can understand why people would invoke that cliche at the end of his life. Well, I didn't know him, but he knew me. Yes. And in those terms, I have to say that he speaks of doing this from the bottom up. Hoover, he tried to avoid acting on the Depression for its first three years of his presidency. He eventually creates the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, which Roosevelt himself will make good use of. But it's the case that when Hoover begins to act, even to the limited degree he does, it's a top-down kind of thing. What FDR is indicating from the very beginning of this campaign is that this is going to be from the bottom up. And look, these are the moments in which folks like John L. Lewis, the head of the United Mine Workers, and Sidney Hillman, the head of the Amalgamated Clothing Workers of America, and other labor leaders, in the case of Lewis, he was a Republican. In the case of Sidney Hillman, he was a socialist. But both the Republican and the Socialists heard these words and this idea from the bottom up. And by the end of the campaign, they've essentially, even if it's on the quiet, you might say, have come to endorse the Roosevelt candidacy and presidency. The next speech I want to talk about is his acceptance speech that summer in Chicago. He becomes the first nominee of a major party to accept the nomination in person and on the radio. And he flies, flies to Chicago. You can imagine his concern. Let's listen to Franklin Delano Roosevelt as he accepts the 1932 Democratic nomination for president. The appearance before a national convention of its nominee for president to be formally notified of his selection is unprecedented and unusual. 
But these are unprecedented and unusual times. Let it be from now on the task of our party to break foolish traditions. We will break foolish traditions and leave it to the Republican leadership, far more skilled in that art, to break promises. This is no time for fear, for reaction, or for timidity. And here and now, I invite those nominal Republicans who find that their conscience cannot be squared with the groping and the failure of their party leaders to join hands with us here and now, in equal measure. This must be a party of liberal thought, of planned action, of enlightened international outlook, and of the greatest good to the greatest number of our citizens. I pledge myself to a new deal for the American people. This is more than a political campaign. It is a call to arms. Give me your help, not to win votes alone, but to win in this crusade to restore America to its own people. We'll get to the substance in a minute, but why did FDR feel compelled to get on a plane, no small task in 1932, and accept the nomination in person? Who knows? I, I didn't have a conversation with him. But you can imagine his concern that people might wonder about this man who had suffered polio. And what he's going to show them is, first of all, that he will not be deterred. And if, and if indeed the Democratic Party wants him, he will be there. His polio will not stand in the way. Two, he's going to stand before that convention, which would probably then, of course, lead to the continuing effort to, if you like, deny any kind of image of him is in some ways wheelchair bound. But it is the case, he is absolutely determined to be there, to stand there, and to rally the Democratic Party, and by way of radio and other means, he's gonna rally Americans to what he believes to be. Ultimately, Reagan had the audacity to allow people to refer to the Reagan revolution. Clearly, if you wanna use the term revolution, in terms of transformation of America, there was the beginnings here and in the course of the next eight years, the follow through on a Roosevelt revolution. I find that he probably didn't want to refer to it as that because when you're actually doing it, you're afraid people are going to notice that you're doing revolution. Whereas Reagan, when you're not really doing it, you want people to think it's more than it is. But I do hope in that vein, you will go to the 1936 acceptance speech. We're absolutely going to do that. <laughs> okay. But before we move on, you... So eloquently spoke of those future historians claiming that FDR that was sort of making up the New Deal on the fly and didn't have a plan and almost as if he was looking ahead to answer them. Let's listen to what FDR said. I have a definite program for providing employment. By that means, I have done it, and I am doing it today in the state of New York. I know that the Democratic Party can successfully do it in the nation. That will put men to work, and that is an example of the action that we're going to have. And then he goes on to lay out in a little bit more detail, but he was answering those people who, who charged that he didn't have a plan, and he clearly did. Yeah, I mean, I'm not an FDR biographer. I'm a historian. And people say, are you a biographer of FDR? I say, no, I'm a historian 
of FDR, which is a little different because what I'm interested in is FDR, his times and how FDR made history, transformed the United States in the course of his presidency and did so in that, as I said before, in that dialectical relationship with the American people who will go on to become the greatest generation. And I think what sometimes happens is that when people become biographers, they start at a certain place and they maybe they limit themselves. And I think the governorship of New York, which is his formative sort of leadership moment, that governorship of New York, that's the moment where he's sort of laying out those experiments. By the way, I also would point out that during World War I, he was the assistant secretary of the Navy. And the man who was his superior, Daniels, what Daniels did is he delegated all of the all of the work of getting the Navy constructed and reconstructed to FDR. So as a consequence, he learned how to deal with labor unions. He learned how to deal with corporate bosses. He learned how to deal with these things and make things happen quickly. So I think that he also brings that to bear. Yeah. And he also did something else in that convention speech, which I think was a real break with the past. And you and I are both familiar with that 19th century and that seeped into the first quarter of the 20th century, the first third of the 20th century of laissez-faire capitalism. And he said, we must lay hold of the fact that economic laws are not made by nature. They are made by human beings. Thank you. Thank you. If we hadn't gotten that, I was going to say, let's go back to that. Look, I'm a professor of history. I've also taught social theory. I think there are three revolutionary lines in modern history. One of them is by Thomas Paine. We have it in our power to begin the world over again, okay? The second one is undeniably that of Karl Marx, the history of all his two existing society, but he also is basically going on to make the case that we have it in our power to begin the world over again, as Paine had said. But Roosevelt then puts it in decidedly American terms, and he speaks to the American people very directly. And think about what he's doing. Over and over again, there was this argument, as you said, laissez-faire, you can't mess with the economy, right? Even though government often did mess with the economy to the advantage of the powerful. You can't mess with the economy because it's as if you would be messing with God, him or herself. But what Roosevelt is telling his fellow citizens is, look, history is first and foremost a matter of change. And there is not some universal law of economics, either in space or in time. He did it more eloquently, but he's saying basically, economic laws are made by us. And thus he doesn't say the next line, and they're made to be broken, but everyone would have understood him as saying that. I, I just love that line, in fact. That actually, to my mind, is the proof that they should have said there's a revolution coming in this country when he said that. I think you're right. And to your point about how immutable those laws were, our entire system of jurisprudence, and it was ironically Holmes who who lived to to meet FDR, as we as I mentioned before, and offer his what I believe is one of the few incorrect things that Holmes said publicly in terms of his assessment of FDR. But uh, up until Holmes, we had that laissez-faire formalism that there was one right way to decide a case and it was based on these immutable economic laws. And if it didn't benefit the, the powerful economically, then that was the wrong way to decide the case. And Holmes came in and blew all that up. As lawyers will remember, that was the Lochner era of labor relations, you know. Let's go to what is one of FDR's greatest speeches, his 1933 inaugural address. And we'll talk about it on the other side. This is preeminently the time 
to speak the truth, the whole truth, frankly and boldly. Nor need we shrink from honestly facing conditions in our country today. This great nation will endure as it has endured, will revive and will prosper. So first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. Happiness lies not in the mere possession of money. It lies in the joy of achievement, in the thrill of creative effort, the joy, the moral stimulation of work no longer must be forgotten in the mad chase of evanescence. Our greatest primary task is to put people to work. This is no unsolvable problem if we face it wisely and courageously. It can be accomplished in part by direct recruiting by the government itself, treating the task as we would treat the emergency of a war, but at the same time through this employment, accomplishing great, greatly needed projects to stimulate and reorganize the use of our great natural resources. I am prepared under my constitutional duty to recommend the measures that a stricken nation in the midst of a stricken world may require. These measures or such other measures as the Congress may build out of its experience and wisdom I shall seek within my constitutional authority to bring to speedy adoption. But in the event that the Congress shall fail to take one of these two courses, in the event that the national emergency is still critical, I shall not evade the clear course of duty that will then confront me. I shall ask Congress for the one remaining instrument to meet the crisis, broad executive power to wage a war against the emergency as great as the power that would be given to me if we were in fact invaded by a foreign foe. The people of the United States have not failed. In their need, they have registered a mandate that they want direct, vigorous action. They have asked for discipline and direction under leadership. They have made me the present instrument of their wishes. In the spirit of the gift, I take it. In this dedication, in this dedication of a nation, we humbly ask the blessing of God. May he protect each and every one of us. May he guide me in the days to come. 
the line that everybody remembers, nothing to fear but fear itself. And as we were talking before we hit record here, I mentioned that I was struck by at one point, I remember we were listening to Jonathan Alter, who was giving an assessment of that line and said, well, in a lot of ways, it's inspired nonsense. If you were somebody who was out of work, if you were somebody who couldn't feed your family, there was actually something real to fear. Um, but I, I want to get your thoughts on that use of rhetoric and what he set up and then talk a little bit about the speech itself and those lines that we don't quote, but that are equally or perhaps more important to his views on democracy. Well, I understand what Jonathan Alter is getting at. I mean, nothing to fear but fear itself. Everybody knew that the banks were closing at an accelerating rate. People were starving. I mean, people were in the Chicago area, as I've read in the writings of Edmund Wilson, people were going to the garbage dump to secure food. There was reason to fear. But what he was trying to say, and this is important to FDR, and this may not be what you're looking for, but FDR actually did have tremendous faith in God in the story of America and in the American people. And what he was saying basically was that I have faith in you. I have confidence in you. I mean, that's just it. We live in a very cynical age, which is what enabled the likes of Donald Trump to be elected. But in fact, there are other times where people might have had good reason to be cynical. And I'm not gonna say that FDR was ever a saint about all of this stuff, but I am gonna say that that confidence, that faith that he had, again, in God, the American story, and the American people, really does empower him in these moments. Really, I don't think he could have even said those words if he didn't truly believe them. And one of the things about Roosevelt is when he said things, people actually took them seriously. I'll give you an example. You'll laugh when I refer to this speech because you and I both know it's not in this book. The banking crisis speech. He gives that speech. And the most interesting thing about that speech is not even what he says, to, to my mind. It's what happens. People actually they listen to him. They went and they put yeah. their money back in banks that they'd stood online the week before and the month before to withdraw. They listened to him. Right. And then they went back and stood online to put their money back in the bank. And I'm told, I've because I'm, I'm not a business historian, I should have known this on my own. I was told the other day that, in fact, more money went back into the banks than had been withdrawn. Correct. So, of course, it's a remarkable talent he had. He was the master of the radio. But it was also the fact, in spite of his patrician, his gentry background, he comes from Hudson River Valley gentry. There was the Republican side of the family, Teddy Roosevelt. And he's out on Long Island for, for much of his life, you know, when he's not traveling the North American continent or the world. But FDR is a Hudson Valley aristocrat and the democratic wing of the family. And one could have imagined that he would have come off just sounding like, oh, you, you could have imagined he was like, oh, come on, you know, it's okay for you to talk like that. You've got all that money in a state up on the Hudson River by Poughkeepsie. But the fact was that he had incredible confidence. His aides and other people would say, when he does the fireside chat, he imagined himself as one of them, one of the people who are listening. And of course, as we know from the first to the last, people imagined that he was in their living room talking to them, which, by the way, mattered especially to African-Americans. Absolutely. Because they imagined themselves in the White House with him or that he had come to sit with them to explain things. Of course, white working people equally so, but African-American working people, that was a unique experience historically. And to that point, I think it's a good time to bring up because we're going to talk about another fireside chat later. But John Kennedy is often given a great deal, some of it earned that he 
mastered the new medium of television better than anybody had before him. And I think that there's some truth to that. I will say being up against Richard Nixon in that fight is not really one to show the strengths. Donald Trump has been given uh, credit for uh, mastering social media, but I don't think that there's ever been a politician, uh, American leader, or even a world leader who's mastered, you know, Churchill might give him a little bit of a run for his money, but he did it later, who mastered the new medium of radio, as you said, so effectively. And one of the reasons I love playing FDR speeches and, and clips of speeches, because they were made for radio. Yes, very much so made for radio. So, so people actually couldn't see him. They could only hear that voice of his. And I want to add to the fact that when he basically spoke to them, and would at times say that he was interested in hearing from them. They had hundreds of thousands of letters arriving in the White House. And they actually had to create a vast staff of women, I say women because that's all they would have hired to do this particular labor, to open those letters. And then they would select which letters might well be sent forward. And by the way, I later met someone whose mother had been a part of that staff. And also on the staff, I believe, of the Truman White House doing the same kinds of things. And it really was the case that people, there were a lot of people reporting from the field. There are academics out across America doing their PhDs in sociology, anthropology. There were reporters who would go out and there were those photographers with the Farm Security Administration. I mean, there were lots of reports from the field of what was going on in the Great Depression and the New Deal. And one of the things that's repeated over and over again is that they would walk into the home, say, of a sharecropper or even a, a white or black worker in the cities, and they would see two pictures hanging on the wall, Jesus right. and FDR, <laughs> okay? And, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, the, the Roosevelt administration failed African-Americans. Well, you couldn't have told African-Americans in the 1930s that, especially when they were naming their children Franklin or Roosevelt or Eleanor. And what I'm getting at is, yes, undeniably, there was this tremendous obstruction of so much of the New Deal because Southern white supremacist Democratic senators and congressmen, and we know that chairing committees is done by seniority, they were more than willing to have money come south, but they immediately could tell when the money might mean they'd have to integrate something or that African-Americans would get to share in it. So he always had to confront that kind of obstruction. But it is the case that there were any number of, in, of engagements and programs where African-Americans were deeply involved in the, in the Civil Works Administration and, and elsewhere. And there were blues songs written down in the Mississippi Delta to honor FDR's presidency for what it was accomplishing for them. So from there, I'd like to go to a speech that you and I both consider to be of all of FDR's speeches, one of his greatest, and I think we discussed last time, possibly one of the greatest and most radical, as you put it in the context of your previous book, speeches ever given by a sitting American president. And that is Roosevelt's 1936 convention speech in Philadelphia. I come not only as a leader of a party, not only as a candidate for high office, but as one upon whom many critical hours have imposed and still impose a grave responsibility. I thank the millions of Americans who have borne disaster bravely and have dared to smile 
through the storm. Philadelphia. Philadelphia is a good city in which to write American history. This is, this is fitting ground on which to reaffirm the faith of the fathers, to pledge ourselves to restore to the people a wider freedom to give to 1936 as the founders gave to 1776, an American way of life. In 1776, we sought freedom from the tyranny of a political autocracy, from the 18th century royalists who held special privileges from the crown. It was to perpetuate their privilege that they governed without the consent of the governed, that they denied the right of freedom. He accepts his renomination as the Democratic Standard Bearer. And there's so much to talk about with this speech. Let's start with you setting the scene of him being in Philadelphia, if you want to talk about his his fall before he uh, gets onto the stage. But just set the scene of where we were in Roosevelt's administration. We've skipped a lot. Um, like I said, we could do six parts um, instead of just two on this on your book. But let's talk about that that speech and start from the beginning. Okay, well, let's first set the world historical scene. The world historical, let's not forget, Hitler has come to power in Germany. Mussolini has already been in power in Italy for quite some time. The Japanese militarists, Emperor Hirohito's officers under Tojo, have invaded China and are threatening East Asia generally. And Roosevelt himself is very much concerned about, obviously, the state of the world, but he knows damn well that Americans do not want to become engaged in another war. But he has literally created a new energy in America. And conservatives like to tell you that the New Deal didn't work. Believe me, the New Deal worked. Yes, there was still significant unemployment, but what the conservatives don't count is how many Americans were working in some kind of capacity by way of New Deal programs. That's first. I mean, Americans gave their labors to the recovery effort. They transformed the landscape by way of the CCC and the later development of the WPA in 1935. The PWA was building dams alongside the WPA. There were schools build, being built, libraries, post offices. Artists were being engaged in the labors. I mean, there was an incredible energy coming out of that first term. However, it is also the case that the Supreme Court had declared unconstitutional two major acts, the National Industrial Recovery Act and the Agricultural Adjustment Act, both of which Roosevelt himself had gotten tired of. He, he wanted new directions for the New Deal. But the other thing to remember is that the richest people in America had organized to bring down the Roosevelt presidency. They called it the Liberty League. These were the absolutely wealthiest Americans. And they'd spent millions trying to literally subvert and destroy the Roosevelt presidency. The problem is that the vast majority of Americans didn't trust those men and they never could create a grassroots effort. In fact, the only kind of way in which they realized they could create any grassroots initiative against FDR is they began to fund efforts in the South 
to possibly create a third party movement that would pull votes from FDR, even if they wouldn't go to the Republicans, but it would reduce the Democratic turnout because that's where the Democrats had, had the one party rule in the South and the Republicans might then be able to win. Well, going into 36, Roosevelt knew from polling that was not necessarily public that he had a good chance of being reelected. It was likely he was going to be reelected. Americans had already given him even a, a stronger Democratic Congress in 1934. But Roosevelt wanted to move into yet a new phase of the New Deal. He was going to make it all the more social democratic. So they're going to hold the convention in Philadelphia. Now, of course, Philadelphia is the place where American independence was declared. 1776, this is 1936. And FDR basically gives the order to the Democratic Party, we're going to make this convention, if you like, a celebration of the idea of, the, of American independence and the American Revolution, and we will go from there. Now, in a State of the Union address in January of 36, he had already begun to point a finger overseas and to warn Americans about how the rich and the powerful had already empowered fascists abroad. So he's setting the stage for what will be an extraordinary moment. And he gives the speech in a baseball stadium, the Franklin Stadium in Philadelphia. When he arrives, as he's ascending to the platform, he falls. This was one of those moments where, where all would be revealed, you might say. The man is not as strong. He's not as capable. His standing forth always requires assistance. But he, he is enabled to stand. He cannot do it on his own. He goes up there and he delivers. hope I'm not leaving anything out you're looking for. He delivers, arguably. I, I don't think there is a more radical speech in American history. I know there's a more radical speech delivered by a president than the acceptance speech that year. Because what he does is he makes the most of the American Revolution. And this is, that, this is really that moment where he's putting himself into that same position of now is our time to declare our independence from those he calls the economic royalists. As he says, in 1776, we had to fight the political royalists. 1936, we have to fight the economic royalists. And I want to go through this somewhat sequentially because I want to hit all of these points. You pointed out so he begins the speech and he talks about the fact that we have conquered the fear that he talked about in 1933. But all is not well in the world. And he leads right. up to that. And then he goes to where you just went, and we will play clips of this throughout. So talks about Philadelphia being the city, and he says, Philadelphia is a good city in which to write American history. And I think I, I love that line. I absolutely love it. <laughs> because it's so it's so audacious and shows what he intends to do with the rest of his remarks. And by the way, let's not forget, I mentioned his his heroes, presidential heroes, were indeed. Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson. And he had intended in the early 1920s to model himself so much after them that he wanted to write the history of the United States. He wanted to write a literally a history, capital H, of the United States. And he began the project, but he found he wasn't quite the writing man that they were. That he, he was good with words, but writing a history, it probably was daunting to him. I mean, you think about writing a whole history of the United States. But as I said in the prior book on FDR and the Greatest Generation, in his own way, he began to write the history of the United States through his speeches 
And here he goes beyond the writing and he says, we're going to make history. And it's just, it's absolutely wonderful. Again, I'm not going to portray him as a saint, but this was a moment of mortal crisis, two crises, the economic crisis of the Great Depression and the social catastrophes that ensued. And of course, fascism, East and Japanese imperialism to the West, if you think about it from the vantage point of the United States. And he is now, I mean, in many ways, as, well, as you'll see, I won't, I won't kill the, the punchline for the whole speech. This is the speech in which he is rallying Americans, not only, not only to vote for him for a second term, which he knows he's likely to win anyhow. He wants a massive mandate. And he wants people to understand that by voting for him, they are going to pursue the revolution that was launched in the New Deal. And also they're going to create an ever more democratic America because he really does believe the best way, the best way to bolster America's capacity to fight fascism is to make America more democratic. Absolutely. And, and I think that you set it up well. He talks about the original revolution, 1776, talks about those royalists. And then as he says, Political tyranny was wiped out at Philadelphia on July 4th, 1776. <laughs> but since that struggle, man's inventive genius released new forces in our land, forces which reordered the lives of our people. The age of machinery, of railroads, of steam and electricity, the telegraph and the radio, mass production, mass distribution, all of these combined to bring forward a new civilization and with it a problem for those who sought to remain free. For out of this modern civilization, economic royalists carved new dynasties. New kingdoms were built upon concentration of control over material things. Through new uses of corporations and banks and securities, new machinery of industry and agriculture, of labor and capital, all undreamed of by the fathers, the whole structure of modern life was impressed into this royal service. There was no place among this royalty for our many thousands of small businessmen and merchants who sought to make a worthy use of the American system of initiative and profit, they were no more free than the worker or the farmer. The royalists I have spoken of, the royalists of the economic order, have conceded that political freedom was the business of the government, but they have maintained that economic slavery was nobody's business. These economic royalists complain that we seek to overthrow the institutions of America. What they really complain of is that we seek to take away their power. Our allegiance 
and our allegiance to American institutions requires the overthrow of this kind of power. In vain, they seek to hide behind the flag and the Constitution. But in their blindness, they forget what the flag and the Constitution stand for. Now, now as always, for over a century and a half, the flag, the Constitution, stand against a dictatorship by mob rule and the overprivileged alike. And the flag and the Constitution stand for democracy, not tyranny, for freedom, not subjection. He ran for the vice presidency in 1920 on the Democratic ticket. And of course, the Republicans were charging the Democrats with wanting to somehow weaken America, that they were somehow going to give away American sovereignty because the Democrats were endorsing the post-war League of Nations, whereas the Republicans opposed it. And Roosevelt at that moment learned what it meant to wrap yourself in the flag because that's how he viewed what the Republicans were doing to them. And this is his moment of saying they like to wrap themselves in the flag and they miss the real point of what American democracy is about. It is amazing. And you and I both have spoken before. The texture of the speech, I someday would love to, one of us should write an entire book just on this particular speech. One of the things that I, I, I thought was amazing, he goes from the biblical, we do not see faith, hope, and charity as unattainable ideas. The next part that I wanted to discuss with you is where he sort of comes to his governments can err, presidents do make mistakes. Governments can err, presidents do make mistakes, but the immortal Dante tells us that divine justice weighs the sins of the cold-blooded and the sins of the warm-hearted in different scales. Better the occasional fault of a government that lives in a spirit of charity than the consistent omissions of a government frozen in the ice of its own indifference. If we place it in the context, again, of 1936, and remember that he's living, he knows in one sense, he's confident he's going to be reelected. But he knows damn well the forces arrayed against him. He knows, for example, the Supreme Court is more than capable of taking down whatever he tries to pursue. He knows, by the way, and this is, this is significant in those terms, the major industrialists in the United States had asked their lawyers, was 
the National Labor Relations Act of 1935, the act that would empower labor union organizing and collective bargaining, that would assure workers, workers in the plural right to organize, that that was the law that literally would weaken the powers of capital in favor of what they called at that time industrial democracy. So there's lots of reasons that FDR really does need to build upon this. But it's also the case, he gave a speech back in 1932, just before he actually won that election, in which he talked about social justice through social action. As much as he was a history teacher in chief, he does have, if you like, a very strong moral sensibility, and he's very much aware of American sense of right and wrong and their sense of justice and injustice. And what he's speaking there may seem like high literature to refer to Dante. How many Americans would actually know of Dante? And maybe I'm underestimating it, in fact, but I mean, I didn't really read Dante until I got to college. Those who went to Groton and Andover, maybe. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe. Well, you know what? How about if, I haven't thought about it this way. This speech wasn't only to rally Americans. This speech was a warning, a warning to those who held the power and wealth. This is a warning. And I say that because people on the left, they actually tend to denigrate, denigrate or deride the FDR presidency as not being radical enough. But they haven't read the speeches. You can read his speeches and realize he's not just looking to to go after poverty, he's determined to redistribute wealth. He's already pursuing taxes that are going to basically, if pursued effectively, make up, I like to think of as the democracy deficit. That is, democracy has been, the powers of the democratic political system have been flowing into the hands of the wealthy as quickly as have the dollars of the American economy. And he says very clearly that it is untenable to have a democracy that operates in that way. So in his own fashion, when, he, when he's, he's threatening them, he's saying, we're watching you and you better watch how you come after us this next time. Yeah, I mean, I hadn't thought of that exactly as you know, the message he was sending. The next paragraph is the one where um, the speech gets its most memorable line. There is a mysterious cycle in human events. To some generations, much is given. Of other generations, much is expected. This generation of Americans has a rendezvous with destiny. In this world of ours, in other lands, there are some people who in times past have lived and fought for freedom and seem to have grown too weary to carry on the fight. They have sold their heritage of freedom for the illusion of a living. They have yielded their democracy. I believe in my heart that only our success can stir their ancient hope. They begin to know 
that here, here in America, we are waging a great and successful war. It is not alone a war against want and destitution and economic demoralization. It is more than that. It is a war for the survival of democracy. We are fighting, fighting to save a great and precious form of government for ourselves and for the world. And so I accept the commission you have tendered me. I join with you. I am enlisted for the duration of the war. Now, this is the summer of 1936. We're two and a half years away from Kristallnacht, where we could go through all the events that are far in the future. But FDR senses that moment, I think, before many, even on the continent, do of what is about to happen in the next decade. Talk a little bit about his prescience yeah. there. Yeah. In fact, I'll go further than that. When you said prescient at the very beginning of our conversation, I was Going to interrupt you, and now's a good time to, to add the point I would have interrupted you with. In 1932 or 33, he had a, well, he definitely had in 32 and 33, a brains trust that basically was a, a brains trust that whose task it was to generate ideas, to look at his gubernatorial time and see how they could translate those experiences into a presidential agenda. It's also the case that they would occasionally contribute to the writing of his speeches. FDR was really smart in having speech writing teams. He gave so many speeches, there was no way he could have churned out all those speeches by himself. Though it's often known that the best lines, that all the speech writers have always said, the best lines, the perorations as they're known, were FDR as well. One of his three Brains Trust members was a man named Rexford Tugwell, who was, of all things, an agricultural economist at Columbia University. And Tugwell later wrote, after FDR's passing, two books about Roosevelt and his presidency, one of which I, I think is just extraordinary. It's titled The Democratic Roosevelt. In fact, there's a line in that book. I'm hoping to write a, a speech of my own based on that one line. So what's funny is Tugwell said, not funny, you know, it's actually tragic in a fashion. Tugwell says that FDR told him, in light of what he was witnessing in East Asia, that we will be at war with Japan in the course of my presidency, something to that effect. He actually, he saw the militarism emergent in Japan and what he believed to be the, the inevitable confrontation between Japan and the United States. There's no evidence that he imagined, especially that early, that that might've happened in Germany. But he's very much aware in 1936 of the threat that Hitler poses to the world. He knows it. And when he does that, I mean, people say, well, do you think he knew? I, I, yeah, I think he knew what was, what was likely to happen. And his fear might well have been to what extent Americans would have been not only unprepared in, in any kind of material and armament style fashion, but to what extent they would have been emotionally and psychologically unprepared to confront that. So 
When he says a rendezvous with destiny, he means it both in terms of the crisis underway still in the United States and the crisis that prevailed on the global scale and was definitely building up. I mean, it was it was already evident what Hitler's ambitions were by 1936. What's amazing to me also about that that line or the antecedent to the rendezvous with destiny is where he talks about to some generations, much is given of other generations, much is expected, is clearly the basis of where John Kennedy, a member of that of that generation who heard that speech, comes up with the ask not line or the idea for it. It's clearly a forerunner of it. Yes, it is. Right. Especially since he was a part of that generation that had to confront that rendezvous with destiny probably hoping they would never have to deal with a further confrontation on the lines of the Cold War. One could only have wished that Kennedy had adopted more of FDR's sensibility regarding questions of political economy. Well, absolutely. He was, uh, let's put it this way, there's a reason why Republicans still like to, the RNC likes to churn out Kennedy quotes on economics these days. Oh, thank you for saying that. I've been, that's exactly what I've been telling people. Yes, absolutely. I remember Ken Melman, who served in the Bush White House with me, was a huge fan of quoting President Kennedy, but for the wrong reasons. Uh, this is the other thing is where he ends that speech. And this is along the same lines that we've been talking about, but it is stunning to me. I accept the commission you have tendered me. I join with you. I'm enlisted for the duration of the war. Now, this is five years before Pearl Harbor. This is at a place where anybody who, as FDR did, knew the American presidency knew he would serve another nine years as president after having served almost three. The, the point is, it's amazing to me. Those who, who want to say that FDR ran for a third and fourth term or at least a third term out of ego and arrogance, I really do believe he was committed to serving for the duration of the war. Yeah, I mean, think of that line. It is more than that. It's a war for the survival of democracy. It's so clear that he, he knows that the struggle at home. Look, I believe he feared the possibility that the rich and powerful, those dozen men who controlled General Motors, the DuPont Corporation, industries like that, I believe he feared the possibility that they might try to resort to a fascist alternative. The reason I say that is when we get to the speech of January 44, the Economic Bill of Rights speech, it's probably important to look at the lines afterward, which very few people do because of the warning that he gives Americans at that moment. In 1938, for the midterm elections, he will go south to Georgia and he will give a speech in which basically he says that, you know, anyone who is willing to support the feudal regime in the south would ba is basically supporting fascism. I mean, he has on his mind that this is a war about democracy. And I can tell you that everyone, you know, they scorn him because it wasn't enough of a civil rights initiative during his, his presidency. But you can see the degree to which there were efforts to begin that civil rights battle. If you think about his appointment of the former governor of Michigan, Frank Murphy, to head a, the attorney generalship and his creation of a, basically what was called, I think, originally a civil liberties division, which then meant civil rights. And I could point out other places along the way in the speeches. The point is that FDR did not see the battle of the 1930s as simply as so many historians and pundits like to say, and it outrages me when they do, that he wanted to save capitalism. He wanted to save democracy. 
And the United States was a liberal democracy, which, of course, implied you're going to save not only capitalism, but democracy. But if you had to put it on the scale, I have little, little hesitation in saying democracy was the primary aspiration. That's a good place to end for this week. We are not finished with FDR on democracy, because next week, Professor Kay will be back to talk about the greatest speeches and writings of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. We hope you join us. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows.